and pray with me again, please. Lord, as we prepare to look into your holy word, we pray that you'd be pleased, Lord, to grant us a special measure of your Holy Spirit so that we would rightly understand and apply all that we read and hear today. We ask this for our sake and for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. For using a pew Bible, you can find them on page 8. We're going to continue a, a survey preaching series of the book of Genesis. Some of you are guests. We don't typically preach through four chapters of the Bible in one day, but every now and then we do. We're making our way rather quickly through this first book of the Bible, and we find ourselves in the middle portion of, of Genesis chapter 12. In our study last week, when we looked at the first portion of chapter 12, we met these two characters, Abraham and Sarah. That's how we tend to think of them and know them and, and refer to them, and that's how I will refer to them throughout much of my commentary Um, But at this point in time in their lives, they're still known by their original names of Abram and Sarai. Their names won't be changed until Genesis chapter chapter 17. Um, We learned last week that the Lord called Abram to come follow him to a land that he didn't know. In fact, the, the one even who called him to leave his family and all that he knew, the one who called him the Lord God Almighty, at that point in time had even been unknown to Abraham as well. But the Lord called Abraham to trust him. And we're told that that's what the Lord did. The Lord promised that he would make of Abraham, who was 75 years old and childless at the time, the Lord promised Abraham that he would make him into a mighty nation. We understand that that nation would one day come to be the nation of Israel. We'll learn more today about this man who had become the father of the faith for Jews and even also for Christians. And what we'll learn today as we quickly look at chapters 12 through 15 of Genesis is that Abraham's life is a life that's, that's marked at times by great faith. And at other times, not quite so much. We'll, we'll learn that he has times when he acts in very honorable ways. And we'll learn also that he has other times when he acts in ways that can only be called rather dishonorable ways. In other words, maybe Abraham's a lot like you and I. We'll also learn as we look at chapter 15, especially that through it all, Abraham is a recipient of God's unmerited favor. And in that too, He's a lot like you and I. Let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word now. I'll begin reading in chapter 12. I'll begin reading in verse 10. Abraham's responded to the Lord's call for him to leave his father's land, and he's traveled now into Canaan. So I'll begin picking up now in verse 10 of chapter 12. And I'll invite you, please keep your Bibles open throughout our time this morning. We'll be looking at portions of Scripture. We'll make some observations. Then we'll go back, look at Scripture again, back and forth throughout our time 
this morning, so please keep your Bibles open. Moses writes, saying, Now there was a famine in the land, a famine in Canaan. So Abraham went down to sojourn in Egypt, for the famine was severe in the land, in the land of Canaan. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. And then listen to this plan that Abraham comes up with in order to save his life. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. Now we're going to learn later in Genesis 20, I think it is, that actually Sarai, his wife, is his half-sister, the daughter of his father from a mother different than Abraham's mother. So it is a half-truth that she's his sister, but Abraham's a lot less interested in speaking the truth than he is in simply saving his own skin. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Do you see the wickedness of what Abraham did? He gave his wife over to another man. And think of these promises that God had given Abraham already, that out of him he was going to rise up this, raise up this, this nation. Abraham puts that all at risk out of fear for his own hide. Verse 16. And for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and sent his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. You know, it would be reasonable for us to question why would a story like this even be in the Bible? It's truth, so that's a good reason for it to be in the Bible. But, but why would this story be in the Bible? And particularly, why would a story like this appear at this point in Abram's life? We just met Abram. We've just met him. And here we see already that he's a man of less than stellar faith. Less than stellar morals. And you know, that actually sets up a pattern that we'll see throughout the biblical narrative. We'll see other giants of the faith fail as well. We'll see that David's character 
has cracks. We'll see great failing in his life. And in the life of Solomon, this this man who was this incredibly wise man will act in very unwise and in very ungodly ways. Think of the, the life of Jonah who rejected the Lord's call upon his life and who ran in the exact opposite direction from where it was that the Lord had called him to go. We'll see the disciples abandon the Lord when the guards come to arrest him. And we'll see Peter deny Jesus three times. All of these are less than perfect men. Again, in other words, they're a lot like you and me. And that should give us hope. If the, if the Lord is willing to use the, these less than perfect men, and if the Lord's willing even for His favor to rest upon them, well then maybe He's even able to use people like us. And maybe He's even willing to allow His favor to fall upon you and I as well. And one thing that we'll see consistently throughout the Scriptures is this very clear point. We need a better hero. We need a better hero than David. We need a better hero than Solomon. We need a better hero than Abraham. And friends, that better hero is the Lord Jesus Christ. His faith does not falter. His faith does not fail. He doesn't give in to fear. He doesn't turn to dishonorable ways in an attempt to save His skin. But instead, this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, will give His very life. And He'll allow for His blood to be poured out upon the ground to inaugurate what He called the new covenant in His blood. This story is in the Bible also because it shows us how God will protect His people. God's sovereign purposes will not be thwarted. His intentions will not be denied. His intentions, His purposes for the world will certainly come to be. And friends, His purposes and His intentions for you and I are also every bit as sure. God had decreed that Abraham and Sarah would be the father and the mother of the people of God. And in this account, we see how the Lord protected Sarah and how the Lord protected His sovereign purposes in spite of Abraham's lack of trust that the Lord could and indeed that the Lord would protect them otherwise. And let me say this also. Stories like this are a great reason of why it is that we can trust the Bible. What other book of any other religion in the very same chapter that, you in, that you're introduced to the father of that religion's faith, in what other book of any other religion would you see that man's faith be presented as faltering like Abram's faith here? The Bible doesn't sugarcoat life. 
And the Bible is singular in its honest portrayal of the realities of life and in the failings even of its fathers of the faith. So in chapter 12, we see Abraham act in this less than honorable way, in a way that put his wife in danger out of fear for his own life. As we come to chapter 13, we'll see Abraham redeem himself a bit, and we'll see him act this time in a far more honorable way. Let's look at that now. Um, Genesis chapter 13, I'll begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read all the way through to the end of the chapter. So, Abram and Sarah have, have now left Egypt. Verse 1, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, you'll remember that Lot is his nephew, into the Negeb, the southern region of Canaan. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed, journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. That was referenced last week, the first part of, of chapter 12. To the place where he had made an altar to the Lord at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were, in, were dwelling in the land. Verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Abram is offering, offering Lot the choice of anything that he can see. What do you think is the best land, Lot? What land would you most like to live upon? Take it. It's yours. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll take what's left over and go to the right. Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, the garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And of course, we recognize the name of that city, don't we? A city that will bring trouble to Abram and judgment from the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give you and to your offspring forever. 
I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So Abraham isn't always and only a man of failing. He doesn't only act in dishonorable ways. But here with his nephew Lot, we see him act in a way that honors the Lord. Abraham here lives out the Lord's call for us in Philippians 2. Here we say, Abraham, consider others as being more important than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we also see in verse 18 of chapter 13, Abraham's response of faith. He builds an altar to the Lord. He responds with worship to the one true God. In chapter 14, Abraham's nephew Lot is captured by some marauding kings, and Abraham and his men were told, rescue him. And in our time remaining today, I'd like for us to consider the covenant that the Lord makes with Abraham. And we read about this in chapter 15. And here again, we're reminded of how Abraham is the recipient of God's unmerited favor. We've seen God protect Abraham and Sarah through a famine and through their time in Egypt with the Lord protecting them both from Pharaoh and from Abraham's foolishness and fearfulness. We've seen the Lord protect him also on the occasion of his nephew Lot being captured, which is found in Genesis 14. And now as we come to chapter 15, the Lord covenants with Abraham to be his protector and his provider throughout all time. And as chapter 15 begins, it begins with with such an honest expression of heartache on the part of Abraham. As Abraham speaks to the Lord about his sorrow of being an old man and of having no children. And we'll look at that in just a minute. And, and as we do, I want to encourage you that you too can be honest with the Lord about your heartaches and about your sorrows and about your dashed hopes. The Lord gives us passages of Scripture like this to show us that it's okay for us to be honest with the Lord like this, that it doesn't put Him off when we do that. So let's look at Genesis 15, I'll begin reading in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Now, Eleazar evidently is simply a servant in Abram's household, someone who has served him well, and Abraham has decided when I die, he gets it all. We don't, this is the only time we see this man's name mentioned in Scripture. 
But that's what Abram is, is expecting. Even though the Lord has promised on several occasions that he would give him as many offsprings as there are grains of sand on the seashore, still Abram is having a hard time believing it. Really believing it. Do you ever have a hard time really believing what the Lord has told you? We see that even the father of the faith struggled to do the same thing that can too often be a struggle for you and I as well. Verse 3, And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir, the servant. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, this one you're talking about, this servant, he's not the one who will be your heir. For your very own son shall be your heir. Remember, he's telling this to a 75-year-old man with a 65-year-old wife. And then the Lord brought Abram outside and he said, Look towards heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. be." And then we're told, verse 6, that Abram believed the Lord and and he counted, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Again, we see this response of faith. God gives this offer. God gives this promise. He offers this gift to us of eternal life, of the abundant life spent living in relationship with him. But we are called, we must receive that gift that is offered. We must accept it in faith. Now as we move into this next portion of verse 7 and following, Moses is going to speak to us about the, about the covenant that, that the Lord entered into with Abraham. Now what's a covenant? Well, a covenant is a formal, mutually binding agreement between two or more parties. And in the Bible, covenant relates to God's gracious act of establishing a relationship with humans. And there's three primary components of this covenant that the Lord makes with Abraham. The first is that the Lord promises to be his God. He's already made this reference in verse 1 when the Lord promised Abram that he would be his shield. And then in verse 7 he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Does that language sound familiar at all? Doesn't that sound a bit like the language of the preamble of the Ten Commandments, which the Lord will give to his descendants, to the descendants of Abraham, 430 years later, when the Lord will say to Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here we see virtually the exact same language in two of the most important events in the history of the people of Israel. God's covenant with Abraham and the deliverance of his people out of Egypt. So God's promised to Abraham that he'll be his God. He's entered in a covenant relationship with him. We've also talked about how the Lord's also promised to give him a people, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Again, a people, a nation 
who become the people of Israel. The Lord also promises Abraham that he's going to give him a land and that that land will later be called the land of Canaan and then later the land of Israel. We see these promises in, of this land in verse 7 and again in verses 18 to 21 where the Lord says, To your descendants I will give this land. In these verses, again, we see the Lord's promise to give Abraham descendants, to give him a people, to give him a people who would become the nation of Israel. And now as we read the next portion of this chapter, there's going to be some very strange aspects to it. But I want to encourage you, don't get distracted by the the strange things that we'll read. I'll explain them as we go. Let's pick up again in verse 7. God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over and against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down in their carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is speaking of what will happen to the nation of Israel when, they're, when they will live in Egypt and will be held as slaves there. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And remember, who, who's the first recipients of this letter of the book of Genesis? It's the people who just came out of Egypt. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Lord will one day judge the Amorites, the people who live in this land currently, but he's not going to judge them now. He's going to wait to bring that judgment when the Israelites come out of Egypt and then enter the land of Canaan. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So what's with all of this weird language that's in this passage? Well, there's significance to it. 
There's a very interesting conversation that occurs between God and Abraham. In verse 7, the Lord promises that he's going to give Abraham the land. And then in verse 8, Abraham asks basically, how can I trust that you'll do this? How does God answer him? Look at verse 9, he says, I'll show you how you can trust me to fulfill my promise. Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Now, we might not know what's going on here, but very likely Abraham did. He knew that the Lord wanted these animals for what's known as a covenant ratification ceremony. For in the ancient Mideast, covenants were ratified in this way. The parties of a covenant would slaughter animals. And the ceremony would demonstrate the covenant curse that would occur to one of the parties of that covenant if that person were to break the covenant agreement. In a sense, it was saying, if I break my word, may I become like this severed animal. The animals would be cut in two, and the two parties making the covenant agreement would walk through the dismembered animals which were laid on either side of the path. But something strange happens here. Look at verse 17. At this crucial point in this covenant ceremony, Abraham doesn't take part in the ceremony. But instead, God shows up. And just as God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, here God appears in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And God makes the covenant with himself to fulfill all of these promises to Abraham. And against typical covenant convention here, Abraham wasn't asked to join in in this part of the ceremony of walking between the dismembered bodies. But instead, God passed between them himself alone. This covenant that the Lord was making with Abraham would be an unconditional, unilateral covenant. God, with astounding condensation, was symbolizing that if he were to break his word, he would be made to be made to be like these butchered animals. In essence, God was giving his ironclad commitment that he would fulfill these covenant obligations. But what does this all mean for us as Christians 4,000 years later? Well, first of all, we need to know and we have to understand the story and the importance of the Abraham covenant if we're to rightly understand the grand story of Scripture. This story plays a huge role in the life of the nation of Israel. And we can't understand Scripture if we can't understand covenant. Something else that's important for us to understand, and I think I may have mentioned this last week, is that this story is also our story. Because Scripture tells us that if we are in Christ, we have been grafted into Abraham. 
and in the Lord's eyes were among the promised offspring that the Lord promised Abraham he would give him. We are among those stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore who would be Abram's descendants. Friends, this is all grace. This is all God's unmerited favor poured out upon Abraham and poured out upon us also if we would but receive it. Your God is a God who makes audacious promises. And he's proven that he's able to fulfill every one of those promises that he makes to us in Scripture. He's fulfilled his promises to Abraham. He fulfilled his promises to Israel. And he'll fulfill his promises to you too. If you would but trust him and walk with him as a response of faith, walking with him in faithfulness and independence for a lifetime. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you are this God, that you are this God who makes audacious promises, promises that sometimes can be almost too much for us to believe. It was too much for Abraham to believe that he could have descendants like this when he and his wife were old and childless. But Lord, you fulfilled those promises. Lord, we can be like Abraham. We can have moments of great faith or at least of pretty much faith. But Lord, we can also have times where, where we just can't, can't conjure up any faith at all, it seems. There are times where we may act in honoring Um, God-exalting ways, and then there are other times where we act in such foolish and fearful and sinful ways. Lord, we read today that Abraham came to trust you. He believed your word, and you counted that to him as righteousness. Lord, help us to believe in your promises also. Help us to see you as the God who who may be trusted. Lord, grow our faith. Help us to see you as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And help us to walk in response to your covenantal faithfulness by, by giving you faithfulness as an offering of worship in return. Lord, be our God, we pray. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.